electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. This is The Exchange, and we have inflation to talk about today. Coming in super hot for June, up 5.4%. The core reading up the most in 30 years. So why are stocks rallying today? We're going to discuss the seeming disconnect, maybe help put some dots together. My favorite kind of thing. Plus, we have the unrest in Cuba, the latest from Havana, as analysts wonder if Venezuela could be next, and why our guest says the U.S. should not pursue more sanctions. And coming up in rapid fire, what Elon Musk hates, ESPN raises rates, and the government opens the floodgates. But we start with the markets, and Dom Chu is here with the numbers, even though that didn't rhyme. It doesn't matter, because I know what you were saying, and all the viewers and listeners out there know what you were saying. It doesn't matter, because we got another record high for the markets again. It's not, like, spectacular, but it's still S&P 500, NASDAQ, Composite, both hitting those record levels. They're marginally higher in trading today. The Dow Industrial is lagging a little bit because of some of the results that you will talk about later on in the show. But still, a solid move higher for the major indexes, at least for the broader-based ones like the S&P. One other place to keep an eye on is what's happening with marijuana-related stocks. This is one ETF that tracks them, the ETF Managers Group Alternative Harvest ETF. You'll you'll hear traders refer to it affectionately as the MJ. That particular ETF is up 1% right now off the highs of the session. But you can see here it's been locked in a fairly decent channel for quite some time here. And by the way, since the highs earlier this year, we are down roughly 40-some percent on that particular ETF. So again, some activity, but it's going to take a lot more to get some of those levels we saw earlier this year. Pot stocks to watch. Now from pot to snacks and soda. PepsiCo, all-time high today. That stock is up almost 3%. You can see that sharp move higher at the end there. That means that we've seen since the lows earlier this year a 20 percent rise in the shares of PepsiCo. Thanks in part, no small part, a beat on earnings, a beat on sales. They are accelerating and they raise their profit outlook for the year. What's helping things, Kelly? More Americans, more people around the world are going out. So their off-premise sales of soda and snacks picking up. That's helping to drive PepsiCo higher. You can see those shares moving to a record. A decent move. I know you're talking about inflation. They're Mm -hmm. seeing it, but the sales are growing faster than some of those levels. Only you could have gotten away with that opening, Dom, but we appreciate it. (laughs) We'll see you later, Dom Chu. Inflation, like you said, showing no signs of letting up as consumer prices rose 5.4% year-on-year in June. That's the biggest monthly gain in nearly 13 years. Let's break down the numbers. Used car and truck prices surged more than 45% over the year, accounting for more than a third of the total gains. Gas also climbed 45%, but home prices only of 2.6%. A lot of people think this measure is just getting started. San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly told CNBC's Tech Check earlier that she doesn't think inflation is going to stick around for the long term. Listen. I think the main thing to recognize is several months of this doesn't mean that it's not transitory. Transitory is really about what factors are driving it and do we expect it to continue to grow going forward. And I just don't see that happening in the used car market or the airline prices or traveling tourism more generally, all of which are really driving up uh, the inflation numbers. 
All right, so is she right? And what does it mean for investors? Let's bring in Chris Grisanti. He's the chief equity strategist for MAI Capital Management. Jeff Krumbleman is also with us. He's the chief investment strategist at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Welcome to you both, Chris. You're, where do you, you're, I think of the kind of point of view, unlike Mary Daly, that inflation pressures will be with us for some time. I, I do. Uh, uh, yes, I, I do think that's right. And it's nice to be with you again, Kelly. What, but what I think, I agree with her in one sense, which is I don't think it's commodity inflation that's going to get us. Uh, I think uh, there are one-time things like trucks and cars and gas, but I do think wage inflation is going to be the 800-pound gorilla that really, as we enter 2022, that will be what the headlines are about. And it's much more pernicious because commodities go up and down, as we all know. Wages really go in only one direction. You give a 5% raise one year, you can't really dial it back the following year. So that's what I'm on the lookout for, and that's what I think will drive interest rates higher next year as well. I, I take your point, Chris, although I'm curious what's going to happen come Labor Day, because if you have all of a sudden a flood of new entrants to the labor market who generally have lower wage jobs. I mean, that's why we saw average wages go up during the pandemic was just that mix effect. So I know what you're saying for an individual person. It's unlikely their wages would go down. Though, of course, it still happens. People reset all the time. But for society at large, you can definitely sure. see downward wage pressures. Well, the problem there is that we see many job openings in almost all of our portfolio companies that are much higher, for example, than the current unemployment benefits. So I, I really think that this excuse that there's all these folks sitting on the on the sidelines waiting, but uh, is not going to turn out to be true. But, but of course, the proof's in the pudding, and we'll see in a couple of months. And if you guys will stay right there, speaking of inflation, we just had the 30-year long bond up for auction. Looks like it didn't go that well. Rick Santelli is standing by with the results. Rick, what can you tell us? I can tell you that this auction you needed a nose plug for. Yes, it wasn't a good auction. I gave it a D minus. Uh, the internals are horrible. Um, the auction yield, 2.00, 2% right on the nose. The problem was the one issue market was trading two and a half basis points lower. So we ended up with a higher yield, lower price, not good. So it tailed dramatically. And the bid to cover at 2.19, well, the worst since February 21, which doesn't sound so bad. But as you go through it, indirect is 61.1, almost two points below the 10 auction average. Here's where it gets nasty. Direct bidders, you know, like hedge funds, pension funds, they didn't show up. 16.6, the worst since November of 2020. And on 22.3 is the largest amounts dealers have taken of an auction. Remember, they get the leftovers, the largest amount since October 2020. So not a good way to complete 120 billion in supply. And as you look at the charts, you can see the CPI sell off lasted about 15 minutes. Let's see how long this lasts. We pushed up to 137 from 135 in a 10. We pushed up from 197 to basically 2% in a 30. And if we stay at these levels, that will mean something, especially considering how it reversed out of the CPI sell off earlier in the session. Kelly, back to you. Very well summarized as we look at those. Uh intraday charts. Rick, thank you. Let me turn back to our market guest where we're just discussing how sticky inflation is going to be. So, Chris, if you're a little bit more concerned about the wages side of the equation, Jeff, where do you fall? Uh, well, I would agree with Chris that, you know, we'll be watching wages. I think a, a good sign is the uh, increase in labor productivity, which will help keep unit labor costs kind of controlled. But we'll continue to watch that. I think going into the year, we felt like inflation could be a wild card item that uh, wasn't on a lot of radar screens. And um, I think what gives us comfort that it will be um, controlled, contained, is the reaction of the bond market. The bond vigilantes so far have been completely quiet and the reaction of the bond market and the stock market 
we don't like to predict the predictors, and it says it's not going to be a problem. I do think there are reasons to think that there are base effects um, that, uh, understandably, you'd see a spike. You've got these used car prices that are an undue influence. You've got supply chain bottlenecks that will unwind a bit, and labor shortages that also should ease a bit as we move through the anniversary of the unemployment benefits. So, you know, I'd say like anything else, everyone's saying the yield curve's inverting, the yield curve is inverting back in 2018, and it inverted for a nanosecond, and then uh, it quickly uh, went positive again. I think we have to be careful of not assuming worst-case outcomes here, and we think the backdrop remains favorable and the inflation will be adequately managed, but we'll see. All right, I want to explain as well how your views on the world bring us back to your investment choices here. So, Chris, you like Lockheed Martin and Facebook, which, again, goes to show that you can have kind of a macro point of view on the one hand, but also um, some pretty good stock-picking reasons to identify names like that. Jeff, where would you be? I see that PayPal is one of your names. So neither one of you is really doing anything like the financials and energy trade that, you know, people want to stick their necks out on if they do think rates are going higher. Jeff? Well, we've, we've uh, preached balance between growth and value throughout this entire kind of move where folks were getting pretty extreme and saying, hey, cyclicals and value is where, where you want to be. And we've seen uh, growth and value now actually are at parity as we move through this mid part of the year um, up about the same amount uh, as opposed to value really leading the charge early on. So we like technology. We like consumer discretionary. Uh, pockets uh, within auto supply and Aptiv, where you have great innovation um, with advanced driver systems. Um, we also like the um, uh, industrials mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, like it in areas where you see innovation like 2.6. Um, and uh, finally, I think we like some of the material stocks still. So balance between growth and value. And Chris, a quick word on why Lockheed and Facebook? Sure, it could two kind of really different stocks, but but Facebook is the stock that everybody loves to hate. But people have talked about it enough. I won't I won't dwell too much on it. But Lockheed Martin is in a forgotten part of the market. It's an important company. It's got a long runway of earnings visibility. If there's any black swans out there, one that might happen might be a you know more tensions with China. So. And it's the cheapest stock in our portfolio at 12 times earnings. So really like it, like the contrarian of us, really like the forgotten nature of it. So 12 times we're... earnings is extraordinary. That's very right. surprising. In this uh, part. Right, sure. exactly. All right, Chris and uh, Jeff Krumpelman, thank you both very much. And Chris Grisanti, I should say, and Jeff Krumpelman on these markets today. We really appreciate it. As we move along to the banks, as earnings season gets underway, shares of J.P. Morgan and Goldman are both lower, despite both reporting strong quarterly results. J.P. Morgan beating on profit and revenue after it released money set aside for loan losses. CEO Jamie Dimon saying the economic outlook continues to improve, but the shares are down more than 2%. Goldman crushed expectations, bolstered by the robust IPO market, and B of A and Wells Fargo are next with results due tomorrow. So why are bank shares under pressure? Even Goldman's down 1%. Joining me now is Anton Schutz. He's the capital, uh, Menden Capital President. Anton, good to have you. What, what explains all of this? Is it just the sort of yucky bond market Rick was describing earlier? Well, <laughs> the yucky bond market actually will play in the bank's favor. Um, higher rates uh, from a bad auction, you know, will help the banks. And, and the banks have correlated, unfortunately, from a trading perspective with what's gone on um, you know, with the 10 year yield. Uh, the reality is, is the, the banks delivered. Um, the earnings were, were good enough. They were both crowded trades. You could poke holes in both companies and say this and that, but at the end of the day, they're generating capital, generating book value, 
Uh, there's no long growth right now because there's so much money liquidity flooding the markets, which means excellent credit quality. A very strong economy will eventually lead to loan demand. And loan demand and higher interest rates will lead to earnings that are uh, estimates that are far too low for next year. So uh, I expect uh, estimates to rise as the year progresses. I expect loan growth to show up. And I also expect that trading and investment banking will continue to be very good places to be. The backlogs for investment banking are spectacular. What's going to happen with deposits, though? You know, as we were writing about this week, they have these competitors in the crypto world that are offering 4% yields, and that's conservative. Uh, well, not an issue today at all. Uh, most banks are incredibly flush with cash, uh, far too much cash. Uh, if you look at banks here to date, double-digit growth in deposits and loan growth pretty flat. So, um, yeah, no, no, uh, no competition at this point. Um, eventually, that may well matter, but core deposits is what banks have, and those are cheap deposits versus the other more wholesale-type borrowers in a rising rate environment. They may face some issues trying to gather those deposits. And I continue to believe that fintech and banking have to partner up. Uh, I don't see them as necessarily competitors. I see them as partners as time goes on. Fair enough. But I, again, just thinking through what's going on in sort of the very short term space where with T-bill uh, yields trying so hard to be deeply negative, where all of this money, as you said, is being parked at the Fed for about five basis points return. Where does that go from here? I mean, what normalizes things only if interest rates kind of drag things higher? Because if we're talking now about, you know, a Fed rate hike in the picture by the end of next year, as a lot of the market is after the numbers this morning, does that resolve this liquidity situation? It helps. Um, I think that one of the best things that solves the liquidity situation is a continued strong economy where people go out and actually spend the money. And we really need to see manufacturing go out and build new plants and hire people and spend money and start to borrow money. And, and I think that, you know, again, the stimulus programs have been fabulous, but they've created a lot of deposits to banks and a lack of loan demand. As the deposits get run down and loan demand happens, earnings go up. And I think that's really great for the economy. And um, I think the banks will actually be laggards in increasing uh, the cost of their deposits. They're still lowering them as we speak. Well, we should leave it there, Anton, but I just want to check in with you for investors who are looking at whether they should buy some of the big banks on this weakness or if you'd stick with some of the regionals that you've long recommended. Where should people put their money to work in this space? Well, I, I kind of like a little bit of a barbell approach. I like the self-help story, so I like Wells Fargo at this point in time. Um, you know, at some point, they get out from underneath the Fed orders. Uh, it's still relatively cheap to forward earnings, and I think estimates can go up if they can grow their balance sheet. And then on the smaller banks, uh, I like companies like First Horizon and Live Oak Bank. Live Oak's a mix between, mix between a fintech and a bank, and uh, they also have a venture fund that invests in fintech. So I think there's a lot of value embedded in that portfolio. All right. Anton Schutz, thanks for your time today. Good Always to see a pleasure. You. And be sure to watch Closing Bell at 3 p.m. Eastern time for an exclusive interview with Goldman Sachs chairman and CEO David Solomon to further discuss those results and the outlook for the banking space. Coming up, the Cuban government is cracking down after this weekend's mass protests. After the break, the latest from Havana and the role the pandemic may have played in stirring unrest. Plus, this commodity has given up all of its gains this year, collapsing nearly 60 percent from its highs in May. We'll tell you what it is and what's driving prices lower. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. 
It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. In the wake of the pandemic, Cuba is facing its worst economic crisis since the Soviet Union collapsed. It's prompting widespread protests this weekend and forcing lawmakers in D.C. to speak out in response. NBC News' Ed Augustin is live in Havana for us with the very latest. What do we know, Ed? Well, this Sunday, there were mass protests, not only in Havana, the capital where I'm speaking to you from, but throughout the island uh, in over 10 cities spanning from east to west. And these were mass protests, the likes of which we haven't seen in Cuba for decades. Uh, thousands of people in Havana, thousands of people across Cuba um, calling for an end to the communist one-party government, calling for medicine, calling for vaccinations, calling for food. There was a very wide array of discontent, mainly it should be said economic discontent. Um, the country is going through a, a, a vicious uh, economic crisis brought on both by the pandemic and U.S. sanctions on Cuba, um, which were um, hardened substantially uh, by the Trump administration and have not been softened by the Biden administration. These sanctions have led to uh, um, a shortfall in hard currency that the Cuban government needs to import food or medicine, and that's playing now on the streets now because people are standing in line for hours on end to buy chicken and pharmacy, pharmacy shelves are barren. Uh, there was violence both ways between protesters and police. The Cuban government has responded by saying that this is a US orchestrated campaign. And right now in Havana, both today and yesterday, a very heavy police presence with police cars uh, patrolling and driving through Havana has ensured that for the most part, right now at least, there's calm in the capital. Ed, thanks very much. Ed Augustine of NBC News. So could these historic protests actually bring down the government? For more on that, plus the potential ripple effects across the globe, let's bring in Daniel Osorio. He's president of Andean Capital Advisors, which advises clients on political and economic issues in Latin America. Daniel, welcome. Thank you. Good to see you. Why is it so bad in Cuba right now? Is it because of the pandemic? We've seen a lot of concern about access to medicine and food. Yeah. Look, the reality is that the pandemic has uh, shown as individuals and as a society our vulnerabilities, our fragilities, and the Cuban political system and the Cuban macroeconomic system has a lot of those fragilities and, and, and vulnerabilities. And I think this is why there's protest. People not only want food, not only want vaccination, but you know what? They want the right to vote. They want the right to choose. Um, and these are the biggest protests and most substantive protests that, uh, that we've seen on the island since probably mid-90s, 1994. Could the government actually fall, given that this is a communist regime where they have, you know, sort of more resources to political power uh, than a more free market economy normally would? Um, but also, why don't you think that the U.S. response should necessarily include tougher sanctions? 
it's hard to say if this government's going to fall, this regime's going to fall. Um, but but there is movement, there is action, there is outrage. Um, and I think the U.S. has to listen to the Cuban people. I know people in South Florida certainly listen to the Cuban people. Um, there are midterms in the U.S. next year. Uh, Florida will be in the eye of, the, of those midterms. And, you know, um, it, is, uh, it is critical to see what happens next. Uh, I think the Cuban government looks weak. It looks vulnerable. Um, and I think as Latin America, as the United States, Canada and EU have to show its support. But when you say it's weak and vulnerable, to whom exactly? If this regime were to hand over or have some sort of transition from power, I mean, what fills that vacuum? I think it's somewhat naive uh, to think that th this communist regime that's been in power since 1959 is all of a sudden going to disappear. Mm -hmm. uh, what one would hope for, just like what one would hope in Nicaragua, in Venezuela, is a transition to a more democratic, uh, to a more egalitarian system than the one party, one, uh, one system rule that there has been for sadly so long. I know you think that in a way U.S. soft power is the most valuable thing there, that by maybe lifting sanctions or at least not worsening them, that uh, you can kind of hope that that doesn't require the U.S. being blamed for some of the agitation in Cuba that we're already seeing play out. So again, with an eye towards the politics of this next year, is there anything the U.S. should do? It's somewhat unpopular amongst uh, Cuban Americans to say that sanctions need to be decreased or or lifted. But the reality is we've had these types of sanctions now for almost six decades and change hasn't occurred. Sanctions, diplomatic and economic sanctions make life uncomfortable for these regimes, make uh, create quite a bit of suffering within these countries. But the reality is they have uninspiring batting averages, uh, these sanctions. There's been sanctions without government change in North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, um, uh, Syria, Iran. Maybe it's time to try something new. So finally then, sort of depending on how this plays out, where would you be looking to next? Is this the kind of uh, popular reaction that we could see in Venezuela and other Latin American countries? Again, given the strategic importance of Cuba historically, is there anything that we should be looking for on the Russia front, for instance? Right, well, I, it, undoubtedly, uh, Cuba is the intellectual and ideological architect of what has happened and the regimes that have developed in Nicaragua, in Venezuela. If we see slippage in Havana, if we see a weakening of that regime, then undoubtedly, um, both in Nicaragua and in Venezuela, they would, follow, uh, they would follow suit. Now, we have to see what larger powers come in to try and hold up these, uh, these regimes as they wither away. Will it be Russia? Will it be China? You know, the U.S. has to realize that we are not the only game in town in Latin America from a political and economic standpoint, and that there are others with vested interest in, these, in this region and in these countries for their raw materials, for their human talent. Um, we're not the only ones just looking at what's happening in Latin America at the moment. Absolutely. And as you said, there's a lot at stake. Daniel, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank Daniel you. Osorio of Andean Capital Advisors. Still ahead, McDonald's is trading right around its all-time closing high after reportedly adding a number of employee benefits in an attempt to lure workers. We're going to look at the battle for employees. Plus, Virginia is once again this year's top state for business. But which states round out the bottom? Send me your guesses on Twitter at KellyCNBC, and we'll reveal the answer later on. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. Ow. 
It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on markets where we're seeing the Dow the worst performer today, but only down about a quarter of 1%. The S&P and NASDAQ are both negative right now by six and three points, respectively. In terms of the sectors, tech is leading the way today and financials are lagging. We mentioned the bank results and the reaction to prices there. J.P. Morgan Goldman down not hugely, one to two percent. And you can see across the sectors, financials being the worst is still only down about one percent. So pretty muted today. Speaking of inflation, lumber prices are falling for the fifth day in a row now. They've now given up all of their gains for the year, and we're down 60% from those highs back in May. This is going to probably be their eighth straight week of declines after the eight-week streak of gains this past spring. So again, lumber down another 8% today. Let's get over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's your CNBC News update. The death toll rising to 95 with 14 still unaccounted for. At the site of a collapsed condo building in Florida, so far 85 of the victims have been identified and 18 million pounds of debris have been removed from this site. And for more details on the recovery operation, tune in tonight to the news with Shepard Smith. Vice President Kamala Harris says that she is building a coalition to fight voter restrictions. This after she said that Texas Democrats have showed, quote, great courage by fleeing the state to block a restrictive voting rights bill. U.S. State Department warning companies against sourcing products and parts from the Xinjiang region of China. The region has been linked to forced labor and human rights abuses. Now, those who do not exit the supply chains in that region risk violating U.S. law. And the seven remaining members of a black female army unit are close to being recognized for their heroic efforts during World War II. The Senate has passed legislation that would award the Congressional Gold Medal to the unit, which is credited with solving a mail crisis in England. The bill is now awaiting action in the House. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much, Rahel Solomon. Let's get over to Julia Borston now with the market flash that has to do with Hollywood. What's going on, Julia? That's right, Kelly. Well, Emmy nominations are out, and these nominations give us a window into the streaming wars. Netflix has 129 nominations behind HBO and HBO Max combined. But in the race for awards attention, Disney is actually the stealth winner. Now, while Disney Plus has 71 nominations and Hulu 25, if you look at nominations by company, you add an ABC, FX, Nat Geo, and Freeform. Across all of Disney's platforms, it has 146 nominations. That's more than any other media company. And the nominations also speak to the quick ascendance of Apple TV Plus with 34 nominations, nearly double Amazon, despite the fact that Amazon has been producing content for much longer. Netflix and Apple are trading higher today. Disney just gave up some of its gains, now pretty much flat after gaining about 4% yesterday. We'll have to see which of these media giants and tech giants walks away with the awards when the ceremony is held on September 19th. That will be the first of the award ceremonies of the season, Kelly. Did you say Quibi, Julia? 
I did not mention Quibi, but what's really interesting here, Kelly, is that Quibi, which of course is no longer, that content from Quibi is now on Roku. And Roku has earned nominations for content that was originally designed for Quibi. So what that really says is that the content that Quibi produced may have actually been really good. It was just the format, this idea of splitting it up, making it mobile only, just didn't work for consumers. But that content is having another life on Roku and now getting awards attention there as well. There we have it. Julia, thank you so much. Our Julia Borson with all the latest. Crypto traders miss the volatility where parents will be spending their child tax credits and miserable Musk. It's all ahead in today's Rapid Fire. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines today, we welcome CNBC's Kate Rooney and Michael Santoli, along with Nancy Tangler, the chief investment officer of Laffer Tangler Investments. Welcome, everybody. We begin with things, well, if they've seemed relatively muted on the crypto front lately, it's because trading activity on the largest crypto exchanges fell sharply last month. Coinbase, Kraken, Binance, Bitstamp, they all saw volume plunge around 40% in June. That's according to Crypto Compare. Now, this follows a record-breaking May when Bitcoin began retreating from that all-time high of around $60,000. Kate, there's so many different reasons why this could be happening, from Binance's troubles, you know, you name it. But is the fundamental reason just the bear market and, and Bitcoin, basically? That's exactly it. It seems to be a sentiment story. Analysts I've been talking to describe it as sort of a summer lull for Bitcoin, which is not what traders or crypto traders are necessarily looking for. And like you mentioned, May was really a record month. It was sort of fresh off the highs of that $60,000 level. Very active month for trading. So when you compare June down 40%, May was a record. So to be fair, you know, the lower June numbers are compared to one of the highest levels that we've seen for the past couple of years. But if you also look at sort of the trading activity, another firm, CoinShares, talked about last week being the lowest trading volume since October of 2020. So really slowing down here. Net outflows also were negative to start the second half of the year. So traders looking for volatility may be going elsewhere. Some of these other tokens, whether Dogecoin isn't doing much either. But if you're looking for sort of the volatile Mm -hmm. day trading, make a quick trade. It's not Bitcoin lately. It's really been stuck at that $30,000 level and new buyers aren't necessarily picking up the slack. Mike, a lot of people have been watching Grayscale too for this ARB trade that was a, a sort of responsible, they say, for a lot of the Bitcoin buying at the end of last year where it was trading at a premium to net asset value. So you buy the thing and you short the Bitcoin and then it was yep. at a discount and that whole thing kind of unwound. You know, do we have to, it, it, a lot of this discussion reminds me of the traditional stock market lately where a lot of the same kind of flow factors or ARB opportunities are becoming part of the day-to-day discussion around where the price should be going. Isn't that fundamentally bullish in the long run for Bitcoin to even have those kinds of discussions? Well, in the sense that it is in the kind of institutional uh, flow of, of real money and people wanting to trade one thing against another, sure, I guess that's true. But it also could be there was just a crescendo of excitement uh, around the peak in prices, a lot of people buying because the thing was going up in price, uh, not because you wanted it to be owned. And it is right now mostly a traded and owned instrument, not a used one. So, um, you know, it, clearly people are slower to take losses and really get excited about selling the Bitcoin uh, at half the price it traded at in April. Uh, they'd much rather just hang on and hope it comes back. So, look, Tesla shares, 
their highest volume day of the year was exactly when the price peaked back hmm. in January. So it's just the way things go in fast-moving uh, instruments like this. And Nancy, we, and we talked to Kate about this a while ago, but there's also concern about Tether and the role that that sort of whole unregulated stablecoin market might be playing in Bitcoin one way or the other. And I wonder if people are just kind of trying to wait it out until there's the USDC or some other rival that can kind of come in and, and provide a little bit more... I don't know, trust in, uh, in, in the architecture behind uh, all of the crypto market right now. Yeah, I think you may be on to something, Kelly. And I, and I also think that um, there are other ways to play the digital currency if, in fact, you, you don't want to be uh, an owner directly of Bitcoin. We have trouble buying it for our clients, so we put Block, BLOK, the ETF into our uh, alternate alternative strategy. And, and this way you get to sort of participate in all the aspects, uh, the technology, the, the, the uh, exchanges, and it's, it's a, it's a, and, and some of the Bitcoin that's on balance sheets, like it's square. So you own NVIDIA in that ETF, you own coin, and that's another way to kind of diversify your risk would, in the space, but still participate. So related to that, Nancy, would you guys be interested in buying and owning a Bitcoin ETF if and when it happens? Um, you know, it just depends on what it looks like, Kelly. We, yeah. we are looking at it. Um, I have the young people working on it because they... <laughs> <laughs> They're much more open-minded. Um, but uh, yeah, so this is our first foray into it. We're, we're probably a little bit late, but the, the ETF's up 29% year-to-date versus the, the actual currency, which is you know roughly flat up modestly. Uh, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a good insight, I think, into the process playing out at firms like yours all across the country. So we appreciate it. Let's talk about what's going on with 39 million households receiving monthly bank deposits through year end starting this week. It's not a stimulus check per se. It's that $150 billion child tax credit, part of the Biden administration's American Rescue Plan. Cowan's calling the child tax credit an underappreciated stimulus. They've identified key beneficiaries across industries. Some of the winners are suspects like Walmart and Target and Amazon, TJ Maxx and Nike. Others might be a little more unexpected, like tobacco and alcohol stocks. But, Mike, I mean, they don't say you have to spend it on your kids. They just say you get it for having kids, and you yeah. definitely need a drink if you've got a bunch of them. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. And, and this is disproportionately going to households where it will largely be spent uh, and also hitting, uh, you know, households at a time when uh, they really are more flush than usual. Let's put it that way after all these rounds of stimulus. So it is kind of an interesting little bump in what has already been a very strong retail spending uh, environment and one where a lot of people are looking back at the spring and saying, geez, at least for goods, maybe we did see kind of a pull forward of demand and somewhat of a peak. So this is an ongoing Bob, $150 billion is, is certainly something that's going to make its way onto the books of a lot of these companies, although I guess spread across uh, the country won't necessarily make or break you know, anybody's quarter, let's say. Well, I, mean, I think, Nancy, people are watching it on the macro side for much bigger reasons, which is sort of, is this the beginning of universal basic income or is this the beginning of, of a more permanent uh, subsidy uh, for having children in an effort to increase the fertility rate? Yeah, I it's, it's concerning to be sure. I'm happy for those who, you know, need the money and get it. I think, you know, there's there certainly are some merits, but I'm working on a piece uh, that's centered around Washington and how it, it acts a lot like Mr. Magoo, which is way before your time, but <laughs> a nearsighted sort of bumbling uh, individual who, who sees dest there's destruction all around him and he never sees it. I think some of these policies are going to have long-term ramifications. But if I have to play it in a stock, I'm going to pick Target. Uh, this is this is a company that we own, but um, it, it has raised its dividend 30% in the most recent period. They've been growing the 
the digital business uh, over 50% and their private labels going 30. When I had young kids, that was my one-stop shop. Yep. So I'm, um, I'm going to just think that I, I think that's an interesting place to play. Yeah, absolutely right. Formula, diapers, you know, eating accessories and all the rest of it. <laughs> and alcohol. Yeah, and, and alcohol, depending on your market. All right, let's talk about Elon Musk. The Tesla CEO was in court yesterday defending the 2016 purchase of Solar City. That was back when he was chair of both companies and both were unprofitable. Through roughly five hours of testimony, he said Solar City was critical to a sustainable energy strategy for Tesla. When opposing counsel tried to illustrate his force of will as CEO, here's what Musk said about the job. Quote, I rather hate it, and I would much prefer to spend my time on design and engineering, which is what intrinsically I like doing. Musk is back in court today. And Kate, he also said they asked him, I got, I guess they sort of got into his tweeting, and he said it's good marketing. He said it actually lowers the cost uh, of making Teslas or of the retail price of them because he doesn't have to spend the budget on advertising. Yeah, I mean, he talked about design and engineering, and he intrinsically likes doing that. But he also spends a lot of time on Twitter and social media, and it seems to be part of, like you mentioned, sort of that flywheel effect of Tesla and crypto and just the marketing effort in general. He's got time for everything, though. He's appearing on SNL. I mean, the idea of running multiple companies, design and engineering is one thing, but it seems like he also enjoys spending his time, you know, joking around on Twitter and uh, spending a lot of time online and commenting on certain cryptocurrencies, which the Bitcoin community in particular, I hear every day, that they're pretty upset with the idea yeah. that he maybe sparked some of this weakness. <laughs> no, they get so annoyed. He's not representative of the real community. Uh, Mike, you mentioned earlier sort of the thing to watch in terms of volume and price action. So, Nancy, just a final word to you. What do you think about Tesla here in, in terms of its price and its performance year to date? Oh, me? Yeah. Um, well, listen, we owned it and we sold it early uh, when he was uh, smoking his bong on, on video and uh, there was no sort of or, you know, leadership at the company. Uh, when Larry Ellison came in, who, by the way, is who D Elon reminds me of, the Larry Ellison of, of, of your, mm -hmm. um, you know, we probably should have gotten back in and we didn't. So I, I think this is a, a stock you want to own for the very long term. Uh, it's done nothing for a long period of time, a number of months. So if you, it's, it's a good time to dip your toe in. We have not yet, uh, but we're watching it very closely. Interesting. All right. Before we go, I want to talk some Disney today because they just raised prices for ESPN+. Plus. They hiked subscriptions by a dollar a month to $6.99 after inking a crop of new sports right deals. That includes a 12-year extension of Wimbledon, a seven-year agreement with the National Hockey League, and a renewal of Monday Night Football. If you subscribe to Disney+, Plus, Hulu, or the Disney Buzzle bundle of all three, your prices stay the same. But Mike, I love this story because I think around $7 was what they previously earned from the cable bundle, although granted that was across yep. every subscriber. In this case, it's only the audience choosing to sign up. So presumably they're going to have to keep raising price over time, right? Yes, you have to exploit, you know, the power users, the people who actually affirmatively wanted to own sports content. And so, yeah, the, this certainly was a strategy. And even, even pricing Disney Plus at a very low initial starting point, uh, this seems to have been the idea. Also, it implicitly uh, increases the value of the bundled services, right, because you're getting the ESPN embedded uh, in that. It's what everyone asked for. Back when you had, were forced to pay the cable bundle and say, I just want to pay for the stuff that I'm interested in. Well, now you're going to get, you know, a little bit of a test of that uh, over time. It's, again, not as steady or lucrative for Disney, but uh, certainly not a bad uh, plan B. And they get a higher multiple. Kate, what would you add? Yeah, sports are the last thing it seems like a lot of people are willing to pay for and watch ads. You think of these McGregor fights and some of these one-off events that a lot of people, I mean, I personally don't watch on a normal basis, but some of these 
uh, these events, sporting events, some of these niche sports, women's lacrosse, Kelly, for example, uh, you have the pricing power. If you're going to watch a game, you really want to watch it. You know, there's not a, a lot of this price is sort of out the window. You're willing to pay just to watch the event. Nancy, I think my dad would pay about $50 to watch, you know, my women's lacrosse high school. But maybe, that, maybe that's like a totally different market. He was actually coaching him. But, but anyway, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, we love this stock and we love the pricing power behind it and the improvements in productivity. It's in our 12 best ideas portfolio. This is a company with pricing power. These are the kind of companies you want to own in this environment. So um, I'd pay 50 bucks. I might even pay 100 to see you in your lacrosse skirt. <laughs> no, let me tell you, it's, uh, it's not worth the price that you're paying. Nancy Tangler, Mike Santoli, and Kate Rudy, thank you all very, very much for joining us for Rapid Fire today. Still ahead, we revealed the top state for business. Speaking of Virginia, uh, up next, though, we will get a check on the states at the bottom of the list and what makes them some of the worst places in the country to do business. We're back in a moment. This morning, we unveiled Virginia as once again America's top state for business this year in our exclusive annual study. But if there are top states, there must also be bottom ones. And our Scott Cohen is still in Virginia to reveal those lovable losers. Scott? Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's one of the byproducts of doing a study where we rank all 50 states. Uh, there are 50 scores, and these are our bottom five for 2021. At number 46 is Rhode Island. It is an improvement for the ocean state, which has spent many years at the bottom. The state does relatively well on life, health, and inclusion with high COVID vaccination rates, but it is still expensive, and the infrastructure well, it's Rhode Island. The infrastructure is poor. At number 47, West Virginia, poor for technology and innovation, business friendliness, access to capital, and a few more things there. Number 48 is Maine with America's worst infrastructure, including the least reliable power grid and one of the least diverse workforces. Number 49 is, Ho is Hawaii. It's still great for life, health, and inclusion, but you will pay for it with the nation's highest cost. And that brings us to the bottom. It's not all bad in our worst scoring state. The workforce is America's most productive in terms of output per job, and no state spends more per capita on public health. But that's partly because everything here is so expensive. The state was already struggling before the pandemic with huge budget shortfalls and a slowdown in its most important industries. That's made it harder to climb back. Add America's second worst infrastructure and fourth worst education system, and you get Alaska, the last frontier, finishing last for 2021. Part of the issue in Alaska is oil. It is the state's lifeblood. Prices have come back, but production has not come back enough with it, and that creates a lot of problems. You can find out more about how your state stacks up at topstates.cnbc.com. Look at our article about Alaska. We spoke with Andrew Kramata. He is the mayor of Skagway. It is a cruise ship port. He tells us they are in hardcore survival mode still there, even as the cruise ships come back. You can find out why. Again, topstates.cnbc.com. You know, it's a good point, Scott, because I don't often think of Alaska as a big state for industry, but I do think of it as a, a state that attracts people who are attracted to its lifestyle. I mean, the, I watch YouTube videos from guys out there kind of building huts and sheds and kind of living that wilderness lifestyle. And they're there and they love it. And it's almost as if, you know, they might work jobs here and there, but that, that sort of big business uh, aspiration is not really what they're even looking for. 
Well, yeah, and you, you look at a place like Skagway, and we talk about this online. So normally, uh, it's a town of about 1,000 people. They normally get like a million cruise ship passengers a year. This year, they're lucky if they'll get 100,000. And the people who live there, normally they do a lot of their errands 15 miles over the border in Canada. Well, the border is closed. Mm. Or they'll take a ferry to the next town over, Haines. The ferries have been hit by budget cuts. So there's just a lot going on there, and you multiply that times all of the communities in Alaska and 700,000 Alaskans, and it gives you a sense why the mayor says they are in hardcore survival mode. That's a great reminder. Maybe we should all take that Alaska cruise once we can uh, spend money up there again. Scott, thanks so much for all your great work today. Our Scott Cohn. Sure. Still ahead as the labor shortage continues, employers are stepping up hiring incentives. We'll get an inside look at how managers are trying to fill roles and what workers really want next. And don't forget, you can catch the show anytime, anywhere. Listen to and follow the Exchange podcast today. Welcome back to The Exchange. You've heard about hiring incentives in this tight labor market, but now McDonald's is going even further, reportedly adding tuition payments and childcare to attract potential employees. Rahel Solomon joins me now with some new data on this trend. Yeah, so a lot of the conversations we had in the first half of the year about hiring challenges, well, it looks like that they will likely continue in the back half of the year. So this new data that was just out this morning, it's from talent solutions firm Robert Half, and it shows that of nearly 3,000 Senior managers, well, a little more than half plan to fill new positions and a large number plan to fill vacant roles or bring back furloughed workers. We also know that Americans are quitting their jobs more than ever. We saw that in the last JOLTS report. Worker confidence was also mentioned in yesterday's New York Fed survey. All of this prompting employers to put their best offer forward. So according to this report, 48 percent of companies are providing signing bonuses. Forty three percent are giving more pay time off. And 40% are offering better job titles. But while compensation is important, Don Fay, senior district director for Robert Half, says that employees are also looking beyond just pay. It's been a bit of a shift where we've seen employees really take interest and care in what are the values of the company. They really want to know what do those organizations stand for? How are they treating their employees? What are some of those things that they're doing to really help their employees? McDonald's also responding, telling us that they're increasing incentives in this challenging hiring environment, including raising wages, an average of 10 percent for more than 36,000 employees, as well as PTO and access to education. Access to education, meaning you don't need. Do they have college degree requirements? Tuition reimbursement. Tuition reimbursement. Positions. So you could actually have them help you with your college degree right. in those positions. I do wonder if this is all going to change, maybe not on a dime, but all of a sudden, somewhat dramatically when those extra unemployment benefits run out in September, right? Is this all going to stick through that period of time? Or is there suddenly a bunch of new entrants and you don't need quite the same incentives? Because if they believe that, why would they go through all this trouble now? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, half of all states right now have already sort of come off of that, opted out of the enhanced federal unemployment benefits. So it'll be really interesting to see in September what happens. Yeah, you'll have the other half of states sort of coming off of it, but you'll also have people going uh, back to school and parents returning back to work. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I don't know that it will be such an onslaught of workers as perhaps it may appear, but uh, we certainly will be watching. And if it's not, these incentives are just going to keep going up. Yeah, that's for sure. Rahel, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Rahel Solomon. Well, that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, 
same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 